Father, we are grateful for these words, even though they make high demands on us, even though they call for our whole self. And that's hard. That is what we don't want to give. We resist that demand. We still come convinced that these are your words to us. And because they come from your voice, they are, they are life. And so would you grant us a humility to hear them? Would your spirit give us clarity? Would he speak and expose our sin? But even more than that, would he lead us to Christ, uh, to forgiveness, to redemption, to the power that you have given to us for obedience? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the day-to-day trenches of everyday life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Now those sound like the words of a preacher, don't they? But they're not. Uh, There are the words of David Foster Wallace novelist and author, one of the most influential literary voices of the last 30 years, saying, everybody worships. And even though Wallace didn't embrace the Christian faith, he shared that truthful insight with the Christian scriptures. Everybody worships. It's there in Exodus 20. It's there in Romans 12. That claim is inescapably human. It applies to every single person in this room this morning. Everybody worships. But these passages that we've read, they take another step. They they step beyond, yes, the reality that we all worship. And then they give us the voice of God saying to us, to every one of us, worship me. And worship me alone. I want to come to that demand this morning. A demand we find in Exodus 20 and in Romans 12, and I want to ask a couple of questions. When God demands worship from us, what is he looking for? And why should we give it to him? So first of all, when God demands worship from us, what is he looking for? Notice how that that first commandment in Exodus chapter 20 is God shows up on Mount Sinai and tells us who we should be. That first commandment assumes competition. It assumes competition. God has rivals. And when he calls worship from us, God wants to win. This first commandment reveals 
that God wants to win. Now we think that competition applies to those ancient people way back when who would make statues of gold or other precious metals and bow down to them. We think that competition applies to them, but would you notice how it's there also in Romans chapter 12? You'll either be conformed to this world or transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are always elements of our life in this world that try to claim from us what God wants. They try to grab a hold of what God desires from us. And what is that? What does God want? What does He want to win from us? Well, the image in Romans 12 is sacrifices, right? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship. And of course, sacrifices were an important part of the rituals that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. And there were different types of sacrifices. Some sacrifices dealt with sin and forgiveness and reconciliation. Other types of sacrifices expressed devotion, allegiance, loyalty. These were often called whole or burnt offerings because the entire animal was consumed by the fire. And what was that? That was the symbolic enactment of the first commandment. That animal burned completely in the fire was a symbol, a sign of what God was asking for in the first commandment. Wholehearted devotion. Undivided loyalty. The entirety of one's life offered as an expression of God's supreme importance. You see, worship was never limited to just a few moments once a week. It is not less than that, but it is more than that. Worship has always meant an all-embracing concept where all of our life is integrated by a love for God. Every part of us harmonized around an exclusive love for Him. God wants to win that from you. When he demands your worship, in Exodus 20 and Romans 12, he wants to win that from you. So, who are his rivals in your life? Who are God's rivals in your life? Let me give you three categories to help you answer that question. First category, influence. What most influences the decisions you make? Even the daily ones that that you make instinctually. 
What most influences those? Who has the most weight in your life? When they say, do this, don't do that. This is acceptable, that's unacceptable. This is the right way, that's the wrong way. When you answer those questions of authority, you'll find potential rivals for God. Second category, fear. What scares you the most? What if you lost it would make it seem like the world is falling apart? Maybe a person, maybe a possession, a job, financial stability, fears, all potential rivals for God. Third category, desire. What do you most want? Deep down at the core of who you are, what do you most want for, from life? Or another way to get at that, what, if you don't get it, makes you most angry or despairing? Respect? Fun? Potential rivals to God? So this week, who will win the contested space of your life? Who will win your heart? Who will win your body? Who will win your time and your energy, your emotions and your actions? When God demands our worship, He calls us to turn away from all rivals. And to find in Him our most influential authority, our deepest trust, and our highest good. But why? Why would we give that to Him? Doesn't that seem like too much for anyone to demand of us? Second question, why should we give God what He wants? When he commands our worship. Well, I could stand up here and I could say, well, he deserves it. He is worthy of it. He is worthy of your highest allegiance, your undivided loyalty, all of your life offered to him. He deserves it. And that's true. But that's not the way God talks. Not in Exodus chapter 20. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Well, back up a few words. Back up a few words and hear God saying, I am the Lord, your God. That word Lord, that is his covenant name. And, and yes, it, it communicates God's transcendent greatness, but it also communicates his unbreakable commitment to his people. And notice that God doesn't say, I am the Lord your God, no other gods before me. Between his name and the command, he tells a story, right? He tells a story. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. 
And those little phrases, they're like hyperlinks that, that connect to the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus, where we see God as a mighty warrior fighting for his people. And it is that story that bursts the command. It is that narrative that produces what God demands from his people. In other words, God is saying to his people, I should win in your life because I have won your life. I have defeated all the rival gods of Egypt. I have defeated Pharaoh. I divided the sea. I gave you water and bread and food and protection in the desert. I have won your life. Therefore, I should win in your life. But that's them. Back then. What about us? What about us? Well, Romans 12. The Apostle Paul gives us the command of God that we should offer our lives as living sacrifices. But notice that the command in Romans chapter 12 comes in Romans chapter 12. (laughs) And he starts by saying, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God. There's another hyperlink that connects what he's about to say to all that has come before in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, where he reveals the problem of idolatry and the judgment that we deserve because of turning to other gods. But then between chapter 1 and chapter 12, he lays out all that Jesus has done to rescue us, to redeem us. So chapter 5, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were breakers of the first commandment, Christ died for us. And so chapter 8, because Christ died for us, there is therefore now no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, instead of judgment and slavery and death, we get the Holy Spirit and freedom and life. And so then, chapter 12, I urge you therefore by the mercies of God, present your lives as living sacrifices. That word mercy, it's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word That also means womb. God's mercy is the womb of worship. It is Christ's sacrifice that is the motivation and the possibility of our life of sacrifice for God. God should win in your life Because through the death of His Son, He has won your life. Mercy, therefore, worship. Please, do not get that order reversed. So much hangs 
on the order of that. Mercy is the womb of worship. Worship is not the womb of mercy. Your loyalty and allegiance to God does not produce God's loyalty and allegiance to you. It is His mercy that creates that. It is the work of Jesus that makes us that a possibility. To live as if our worship produces God's mercy is to try to drive a car without an engine. And that order is so important for more than this, but for at least a couple of reasons. Because that, that order, mercy therefore worship, it takes away the power of our self-condemnation. It takes away the power of our self-condemnation. Listen, I know y'all <laughs> uh, because I am one of y'all. And when I hear, and when many of you hear, who rivals God in your life? We can go to town on ourselves, right? We become excellent, world-class prosecuting attorneys. And we can lay evidence after evidence after evidence of our guilt, of our failure, and of our shame. But can you please hear, before Paul says to you, living sacrifice, he says to you, no condemnation. No condemnation. Honest self-examination is a good thing. It's a good thing. And if you honestly self-examine yourself, you're going to find sin. You're going to find opposition to God in your heart and in your life. But what do we do with that? What should we do with that? We need to bring it to the mercies of God. We need to bring it to the voice of Christ saying, no condemnation. We need to find that our guilt isn't even a drop in the ocean of God's grace. So mercy, therefore, worship, it it takes away the power of our self-condemnation but it also takes away the power of God's rivals in our life. It is God's mercy that takes away the power of God's rivals in our life. Because while God through Jesus says to us, no condemnation, anything that we attempt to put in His place will condemn us will crush us, will consume us. If you put work and success in the place of God in your heart, it will consume you. Listen, listen to these words. This is a great, a great quote to describe what I'm talking about. It says, pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in your life, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. 
Once again, that, those sound like the words of a preacher. But once again, they are the words of David Foster Wallace. A man who did not embrace the Christian faith, but shared the insight of Scripture. That if you put anything in the place of God in your life, it will condemn and consume you. But those voices, they lose their power when we can see the contrast. When we can see the contrast of God saying to us, through His Son, no condemnation. No condemnation. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. Every person in this room worships. The question is, will you worship the lethal and condemning gods of money, reputation, pleasure? Or will you respond with your worship to the merciful one who died to give you life. Let's pray.